Welcome back to another volume of Truly Disturbing Tales from Reddit. Today we're going to be narrating three new and settling stories taken directly from the platform. I encourage you all to sit back, grab a snack, and enjoy these terrifying personal accounts. Now, without any further delay, let's jump right in. This story happened about 32 years ago in East Texas. My mom and dad divorced when I was 16 years old, and my brothers and I lived with my mom. Our dad would visit us every once in a while, but not really on a consistent basis. He was a bit of a gambler, which was one of the reasons my parents split up, and he tended not to come around when he was broke. But on rare occasion that he won big, he would visit and spend money on us, and then disappear all over again. My dad said he had a job as a shuttle driver for a local hotel. He told my brothers and me that the shuttle driving was just a cover, that he actually worked for organized crime, which he claimed owned the hotel. He said that his real job was to drive out to various places in the area to pick up fugitives running from warrants or otherwise wanted by law enforcement, bring them to the hotel to hide, and then later they would move on by means my dad said he didn't know. My dad was always a blowhard and always exaggerating or out and out lying. So my brothers and I just blew it off and didn't think much of the claim until something strange happened. My dad disappeared. It was 1988 and I was 22 years old at the time and a college student still living at home. I worked as a full-time disc jockey on the overnight shift, 10 p.m. to 7 a.m. at the local radio station. My middle brother was 19, lived in an apartment with a friend and worked at a nearby Dairy Queen. My youngest brother was nine and obviously lived at home. One day, my middle brother called my mom and I and asked us if we knew where dad was. He says some men came to the Dairy Queen while he was at work and asked him if he'd seen my dad recently. My brother truthfully told them that he hadn't seen or heard from dad in months, but that he often does that, cuts off contact for months at a time. My brother said these men didn't say who they were but seemed satisfied with his reasoning, and left. My brother wondered if these men or anyone had called to talk to us and ask us where dad was. We also had not heard from my dad in months. The following day, my brother says the men returned to his work, and this time flashed badges and claimed to be FBI agents. He says they were aggressive and demanded that my brother tell them where my dad was. My brother kept insisting, truthfully, that he didn't know where my dad was, and that the last that he heard, he worked at a local hotel as a shuttle driver. But the experience upset him, and he phoned us to let us know what had happened. Upset by this herself, my mom called the hotel where my dad worked. The man she spoke to said my dad hadn't been to work for weeks at this point, but that they had no idea where he went either. The following day, my brother was at work when his roommate called and said that someone had apparently been in their apartment. The roommate claimed that when he got home from work, he found the sliding glass door open and the place had been ransacked, although nothing appeared to be missing. My brother, not knowing what to make of this, went back to his apartment and found that in fact his address book was missing from the breakfast nook, and a teddy bear he recently bought for his son and a photo of his son were missing from his bedroom. Now, all of us, my brother, myself, and my mom, were beside ourselves with anger, fear, and all kinds of paranoia. We went to the local FBI office to complain, 
that the, quote, FBI had done this, and to tell them once and for all, my brother does not know where my dad is. Well, as you might have guessed, the FBI claimed no knowledge of the event and claimed that they were not looking for my dad whatsoever. They said none of their agents had contacted my brother. Furthermore, when my mother told them my dad had claimed that he worked for organized crime, the FBI would neither confirm nor deny that the hotel had ties to organized crime or that there was an investigation going on. My mom called the hotel again and told the manager that men were looking for my dad, that they were terrorizing my brother, and flat out asked the guy if there was any truth to my dad's claim to be working for organized crime. The man laughed and told her, Lady, there's no such thing as the mafia. While we were trying to make sense of all these weird details, we kept wondering why my brother was being harassed, but not my mother or me. That's when I was reminded of a weird event that I had happened to me about two or three weeks prior. Because I worked overnight, I was often wide awake in the middle of the night on my days off, with absolutely nothing to do. One night, I went to the local cable TV company where my friend worked as a computer system operator to hang out with him for a few hours and BS a little. At about 3 a.m., he had a big computer job to do, so it was time for me to go home, and I left. As soon as I pulled out from his company's driveway, a car was immediately behind me, tailgating me. I mean, he was on me so quickly that it scared the crap out of me. The car seemed to just appear out of nowhere. The driver also had his high beams on, so he was basically blinding me, and I couldn't make out anything about the car that was behind me. I couldn't see inside to see how many people were in the car, what they looked like, or anything. I couldn't even make out what kind of car it was. I changed lanes to let the tailgater pass, but he changed lanes right along with me. I moved again, and he moved again. He was tailgating me, blinding me, and now seemed to be following me. I stopped at the intersection and got in the left turning lane with my signal on, and he did the same. Since there was no other traffic at all anywhere around, when the light changed, I zoomed across the intersection, streaked across all the lanes of traffic into the far right lane, and went through the intersection doing my best to lose him. But of course, he followed me. Now, it was absolutely clear that he was doing just that. I cut into a nearby neighborhood and tried to lose him, but he kept following me anyway. I finally managed to zoom back out to the intersection and cross over and went to the 7-Eleven at the corner, jumped out, ran inside, and yelled to the clerk that somebody was following me. As I did, I saw the car that was following me cut through the parking lot of 7-Eleven, and for the first time, I got a look at the car. It was a late model, tan-colored four-door, and there were two white guys in it. The clerk just blew me off, said I was exaggerating, that it was probably just kids messing with me, and to let it go. I left, but I was still spooked by it, and didn't want to go straight home. I was afraid they might follow me, and I didn't want them to know where I lived, so I went back to work. I knew that the disc jockey on the air that night would be my friend Paula, so I decided to go visit her on the air for a little while, hang out, and calm down. I told her what happened and hung around for about two hours. She also felt it was probably just some punks being jerks, and that calmed me down. But when I got home, now over two hours since this car had harassed me, that same damn car was at my house. As I was coming down the street to my apartments and about to turn right, I saw the damn car pull out of my apartments, and as it passed me, 
the SOBs flashed their high beams on and off at me. It was them. I panicked and called Paula at the radio station and told her what happened. She was freaked. She was like, oh my god, why would they wait for you at home? Who is this? Dude, call the police. I was freaked out as to how they could possibly know where I lived. Why would they wait two hours for me? And then when they finally saw me, flash their lights at me and take off. But now, remembering that event and putting it together with my brother's FBI visit and apartment break-in, it seemed obvious that it was all tied together. I hadn't thought about it before, but now I remembered. My car was actually my dad's car. He gave it to me about two months earlier when he got a new one. So if someone had been looking for my dad, they might have thought I was him. And when they saw me coming home, realized that I wasn't him and just left. But who was messing with us and why? Where was my dad? Why are these strange people harassing us? My mom, brother, and I went to the local police and filed a missing persons report along with a complaint. We spoke to a very nice detective about it all. About five days later, we got a call from the detective and he had solved the whole strange case. It turns out my dad disappeared because he owed his employers more than $50,000 in gambling debts. The detective confirmed that my dad did work for some, quote, unsavory characters, but said they weren't organized crime per se. He had no idea if my dad was shuttling fugitives or not. He said my dad was hiding out in the state of Nevada, and that he had spoken to him, and he was alive and well, but hiding. We asked, then who the hell were those men, and why were they bothering my brother? The detective explained that it's not uncommon for unsavory bounty hunters and debt collectors to impersonate law enforcement, to call and harass people. My brother asked, how did they get in my apartment? The detective said, a sliding glass door is easy peasy to open, and they probably stole the address book hoping it had my dad's contact information in it. They stole the teddy bear and pictures to use to scare my brother, which worked. I asked the detective why the men only harassed my brother and not my mom and me. The detective said, because my dad had used my brother as a reference on his job application at the hotel and gave my brother's address and phone number. The FBI agents probably figured he was close to my dad and either maintained contact with him or if threatened, would contact him. So my dad eventually turned back up in town and acted like nothing had ever happened. He never spoke of the incident and we never brought it back up. I guess he found a way to get that money that he owed them. I don't know. But that's my story. Thanks for listening. So this was May 2017. My husband John and I own a five-floor, hundred-year-old building, which has our business in it, an antique mall, our apartment upstairs, and various other tenants. We'd had several back-to-back -back burglaries in the prior years and had reinforced the front doors of the business pretty intensely. Aggressive steel bars, more cameras, things of the like. Anyway, at about 3 a.m., we were sound asleep upstairs, as one typically is. But then we got a call from Sonatrol, our security company. We had a motion detect in an unusual location. Not the main floor where 90% of the jewelry is, but downstairs. That sort of thing is usually a spider on the camera, or a mouse, or something explainable. So we ran out less than prepared. I was only wearing a tank top, undies, and flip-flops. John didn't grab his baseball bat, but 
at least he had pants. I went one way to check the front door, which was still intact, and John went the other to check around back. That's when I heard John's voice ring out, and he said, someone's inside. So I fumbled with my phone, trying to dial 911. In that situation, your monkey brain is in the driver's seat, and your phone is the black monolith from the movie 2001. Finally, I managed it and rounded the backside of the building, narrating to the 911 operator what was happening. Broken glass, broken window. I told dispatch, oh my god, they're in here, please come now. Then there was an unholy crash. It sounded like everything inside the building was being smashed to bits. The feeling of listening to someone busy destroying your livelihood is something I can't quite capture. Who was in there? How many? What path of destruction was being laid? I could only yell down the phone at a faceless voice, begging for help that I knew was still minutes away. Bear in mind, I was freshly awake and in a horrible situation, barely clothed, and it seemed to be escalating by the second. As it turned out, the burglar, Troy, had come face to face with John as he tried to exit the building out of the broken window. They had locked eyes and Troy said, oh shit, and reversed direction back into the depths of the building. Then he dropped his backpack with all the stolen merch, flung himself boldly over our giant iron security gate, smashed through the restaurant tenant's door, and then subsequently out their main door. At that point, he'd caught a lot of glass to the face and body and was bleeding pretty good. John caught him on the exit and f***ing pounced on him full body slam to the cement as he attempted to pin Troy. Adrenaline is a wild thing. I wasn't crying but urgently begging the operator to hurry. Hurry. I was terrified that I was going to see my husband die right before my eyes. And then I ran right into the fray because, again, adrenaline. It gets right up on you and you just do the stupidest shit. They were in the middle of the street, dimly orange lit by the street lights and it was hard to parse what was going on. I thank sweet baby Jesus that Troy didn't have a weapon that night and was wildly unprepared to have a madman tackle him in the dark. As it turned out, he had committed hundreds of burglaries and had never been caught. John had the upper hand though and had Troy fully pinned down and Troy was wisely playing possum. Suddenly, we heard a roaring engine and someone laying rubber. Apparently, I began screaming. Yeah, it was Troy's getaway driver, his wife Kelsey. She leaned out her window and yelled, get the f off of him or I'm going to kill the bitch. That was me, the bitch. Clearly captured on audio, but I don't remember it being said at all. Not willing to wait, she then tried to run me over. I vaguely remember realizing things were going horribly wrong, but desperately trying to read the license plate into the phone with an idiotic laser focus. It was out of state, and I struggled to read it. And that's all. My brain deleted how close she'd come to turning me into a bloody smear, within maybe a foot of me, fast, while I dodged like a badly clothed matador, clutching at my phone. We had to listen to the 911 recording a year later in the prosecutor's office, synced with the video. The video was from a nearby business, with really good exterior cameras. John started crying. He had no idea what a close call that it was.
The engine revving overwhelmed my screaming at a certain point. My voice was blown out. I was trying to chant the license number like an incantation, but you can't hear it because the engine roar, plus the squealing tires. John let Troy go, of course. Troy jumped into the car, and they tore off down the street. The police showed up maybe a minute later, but the assailants were already gone. Anyway, Troy had bled all over John from the door glass. John freaked out so hard later. We figured that Troy was likely using IV drugs, correctly assumed as it turned out, and I had to inspect Jim for cuts, using a flashlight to make sure that I missed nothing, although he still got tested. Unlike a number of other incidents, this one was taken pretty seriously by the law, due to the amount of evidence, as well as violence and, you know, the attempted murder. Several months later, they arrested Troy and Kelsey. They had Troy's DNA from the bloody clothes that John was wearing and all over the car that they'd been driving, which had been stolen, but ditched. It turned out they were wanted in five different counties for hundreds of commercial burglaries over several years to support their oxy habit. We were the only fuck up they made. They didn't know we lived on the premises. Kelsey, the wife, flipped on Troy. They accepted a plea for her, much to my displeasure since she was the one that tried to kill me. At least she ratted him out six ways to Sunday. Troy refused a plea. He wanted a trial. Speaking for all key witnesses out there, trials suck. You get interviewed alone by the defense team. Did you know they can lie? Because they sure can. They won't in front of the jury, but one-on-one, -on -one, they'll eat your soul and pick their teeth with the shards. You don't get a lawyer. You're on team prosecution. Theoretically, I can understand it, but it's still utterly maddening. They took me in first. They played the 911 tape, second time I'd heard it. They insisted that because I kept saying, they're inside, that I was lying and there was someone else, not Troy or Kelsey. Sorry, I just used it as a non-gendered pronoun, guys. I hadn't yet seen the person, so they were a they which is what I told them, adamantly. Then they took John. They told John that I admitted I'd lied and there was another person inside the building. He luckily laughed and was like, absolutely the fuck not she didn't. Finally, the day before trial, Troy accepted a plea. Thank God. I had been having the stupidest meltdown ever. Do I dye my hair something other than purple? What shoes do I wear? I don't have conservative shoes. How do I cover up my tattoos? Basically, the most pointless shit that I could think of. But luckily, that train was rolling on. Now, without me. Kelsey got off with probation. Troy was in prison from 2017 to 2020. Until he got released early, thanks to COVID. Kelsey seems to be clean and living a normal life. Remarried with kids and she looks happy. Not gonna lie. I do a little bit of Facebook stalking to keep tabs on her, so I really hope she's clean. While I wish her and her new family the best, I do occasionally wish that she has a raging case of hemorrhoids or something though. I never said that I was a saint and she did try to hit me with a car. When I was a teenager, I dated a guy a couple of years older than me. We'll call him N. He was always exceptionally sweet 
and would tell me how I deserved the world. We never really broke up. He would just move away and it would be agreed that we wouldn't date anymore. We would always end up connecting back with each other, no matter what though. Then, when I was 17, he went to jail for stabbing his stepdad. We hadn't seen each other in almost a year at that point. Afterwards, he would never talk about it in detail, but he would explain that he saw no choice at the time. His stepdad even went to his court hearings and stated that he wasn't to blame, and then he made the mistake of cornering him in a violent rage. When he got out of jail, N seemed to be a different person. He was much more mature. He got a well-paying job right away. He discovered his love for cooking. He was clean and organized and well-read. He looked me up the first day he got back to town and we slowly started developing a friendship and eventually started casually dating. He began to stay at my house on the weekends and then after a few months, he needed a place to stay for about a month and a half between selling his trailer and moving into a nicer rental and things honestly seemed to be going really good. We were talking about maybe moving in together and he would hint at the idea of proposing. Then one day, he started drinking again and became unsettling and weird. Almost immediately after he started drinking, he began lying and I started to get the big heebie-jeebies. He would say he was leaving for work, but then an hour later, his coworker would come to the door and ask where he was. When I would ask him about it, instead of calmly explaining that he was at his mom's on the way to work or something, he would storm off and ignore my calls for days. I immediately ended that relationship, telling him he could stay at his mom's place until his was ready to move into. A friend of mine came over to my house and helped me neatly pack up all of his stuff, and we dropped it off at his mom's for him. I can't tell you exactly why, but we also decided to put chain locks on the door that N had the key to, because even though he had given my key back, I had a completely unfounded suspicion that he had made a copy without telling me. Sure enough, that night, N came to my door without calling and without knocking, tried to let himself in. I had rested my skateboard against the door so when it opened, I'd hear the crash. I heard him cuss under his breath and just leave. The next day, I came home from walking my dog with a male friend who I had been friends with my entire life and would hang out with both N and myself. And there was a picture I had painted for N on the front porch of my house. It had blood splattered all over it. I asked my friend what I should do, and he was honestly kind of horrified. It was too big to fit in the garbage can, and I didn't want this blood-covered painting just sitting around my house. So later that night, we ended up burning it in the outdoor fireplace. A few days later, N called me and asked if he could come over later and talk. I said that was fine, and he told me he would be over at about 7 p.m. At around 8.30, he hadn't called or shown up, so I was sitting on my computer when I got a call from my aunt, who had a police scanner. N had apparently broken into a woman's home with a gun. Fearing for her life, she had shot her own shotgun at him. The police eventually caught him running in the direction of my house. He went back to jail, but only for about six months, since they couldn't find the gun that he had, and because the woman whose house he broke into didn't want to cooperate with police. He ended up getting a very light charge. Around this time, I had started dating someone else. We'll call him S. And the very first time we were out around town together, N saw us, 
ran up on us, ripped his shirt off challenging us to a fight. S responded just by kind of chuckling in discomfort, and we got back into the car and left. This became a semi-regular occurrence, and then one night we were cuddled up in my living room just watching TV when we heard something hit the patio window really loudly. We went and looked around, expecting there to be a bird or something, but we couldn't find anything. The next day after S had left, I had gone outside onto the small patio and in the light of the day, I could see what we had missed the night before. It was a bullet, a bullet for a hunting rifle. It looked as if it had been thrown at the window from over the fence, not shot. I ended up moving away and ultimately marrying S, and actually randomly showed up once when we were meeting up with an all-around mutual friend, and it was pretty weird, but also pretty coincidental, so all we could do was shrug it off. A little while later, N went back to jail for breaking into another woman's home. He was released after a short stint after that one as well, but then, almost immediately after his release, he was all over national news because he had been caught trying to kidnap multiple children, going so far as to take one child and choke them until the father, by coincidence, found them and was able to pull him off. The young boy survived, but he was unconscious for a while, suffered no brain damage, but was pretty shaken and likely will be for his life. After N was incarcerated for that, he was arrested right after his release for the murder of a woman in the town we had grown up in several years earlier because they had only discovered her remains whilst he was in jail. Details were never publicly released, because the trial is still ongoing, but the rumor is that he broke into her house, having been casual acquaintances with her, and took her life, then moved her body to a small forested area that happened to be a mutual friend's property. He also, allegedly, killed his cellmate while he was in jail but he was found not guilty because the jail mishandled a bunch of evidence and the prison guards mixed up their stories a bit so prosecution couldn't prove that he did it beyond a reasonable doubt. His cellmate was just a poor young kid, barely 19, in jail for theft. Of course, the kid should have gone to jail, but in no way should that have been a death sentence. While he's been in jail this time, N has apparently attacked multiple female prison guards by choking them. There are of course rumors around our town that some other missing people were also his doing, and there's a bunch more true stories about women catching him trying to break into their house that never made it to court because they didn't know who it was at the time, so police didn't know who to look into, and they only realized it was N after his face became plastered all over the media. I often think of the fact that I intimately knew this person, and sometimes I feel guilty for not having seen the signs. Other times, I feel creeped out that I could have been a victim of his. I feel like I somehow should have known that I was living with a potential serial killer, but until he started drinking, he truly seemed like a stand-up guy that had made bad decisions and was doing his best to make a decent life for himself. Up until very recently, I never spoke about him or even acknowledged that I knew him. Obviously, my husband knows, but he knows it makes me uncomfortable and we don't discuss it. I guess I just wanted to share this creepy encounter story, almost as a way to process it. Thanks for assisting in the process. Love. 
Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.